Well, welcome everybody, uh, those listening live, those that will be listening on podcast later in the week to this week's uh, Truett Church Network Pro Ecclesia webinar and podcast. Our guest today is my friend Vernon Gordon. Um, Vernon is the senior pastor at Life Church uh, RVA in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Vernon and I got to know each other over the past couple years through serving together on the board for Uptick. Uh, a leadership development organization based in Virginia that we're also now expanding to Texas. Um, and I'm just uh, grateful he's able to join us today. Vernon, welcome, friend. How are you, my friend? Excited to be here. Excited for this conversation. Uh, wish I was in Texas with you, uh, but, uh, but, but Zoom has allowed us to be together today. So super excited about the conversation. We're going to figure that out one of these days. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to get that done one of these days. Now that, uh, it looks like what well, we were just talking about travel beforehand, that we can travel safely and in good conscience a little bit. And so hopefully, Absolutely. hopefully we can make that happen. For well, sure. Vernon, for those that are watching or listening that do not know you and don't have that pleasure, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do people need to know about Vernon Gordon? Wow, well, that's a big question, but I'll start with the most important aspects of my life. Um, and that is um, I have a beautiful wife, Ashley, um, who I've been married to 10 years this August. Um, I have two beautiful children. My daughter just turned seven last Monday. So she's seven and my son is five. So a girl and a boy, two and through, we're good to go. Um, God has been good. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and we have the privilege of pastoring a church that we planted in 2015. We celebrate six years, the second Sunday in July, um, which is called the Life Church here in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, in addition to that, I am the founder of a nonprofit called the Mosaic Project, which um, is committed to inspire social change and cultural unity for the greater good, birthed out of, um, as you could imagine, um, the, the many challenges and conversations that emerged throughout the last 12 months of uh, our country's story as well. And, uh, and then beyond that, I would say just a little bit of history. Uh, I, am grown up in a, I have grown up in a small country church in Chesapeake, Virginia. Okay. Uh, my grandmother started in her garage Wow. Um, and my dad played drums on pots and pans and, uh, and every church solo was mine because I was the only kid in church who sang. So um, grew up in a very small church. And, uh, and very early on, my journey with theology and faith was that I was a former cancer patient, diagnosed at 10, mm. uh, two tumors, 13 surgeries, three years of chemotherapy, told I would die three times. I had surgery almost every year from 10 uh, to 22 years old. And wow. I like to tell people I left that experience loving God, but questioning church. Mm. Um, I understood, okay, this God thing is real. Something about what my grandmother has been praying about is real, but how does this all work in the realm of church? How do our churches show that love? When I was that kid on the cancer wing, I was like, how does the church connect to that life and that experience? And so um, that's a little bit of how I got here. I like to say, when people ask me my starting point in ministry, um, it, it really wasn't a, a drawn attraction to the pulpit. Yeah. It was that experience in life where I really met God for myself beyond just the religious routine and said, hey, I can bring hope to people's lives in this way. Um, that's where it all started for me. Wow, I, I didn't know that full part of your story. Um, yeah. that, that obviously has impacted you in, in many, many ways. And your grandmother started the church in the garage. In the garage. Boy, no. what, a, what a witness to the family, that's incredible. Absolutely. No training, no, no affiliation. I don't know if all of that was wise. If we talk about church planning, <laughs> there were probably some things that probably we should have had some, uh, some, some support in, but uh, definitely it was a rich legacy 
um, of just boldness and, and, and evangelism. And, and I, I pray that I stand on their shoulders well and carry that legacy well today. So I know you preach. Do you still sing a solo occasionally? When they let me, you know, it's, it's funny <laughs> as the church grows and you have like a department, they're like, hey, man, you're really messing up like the plan for the Sunday, you're kind of taking us over time. You know, our, our audio visual director actually told me the other day, he said, hey, Facebook only gives us a certain amount of time and we were almost <laughs> about to get cut off. So uh, the song got good to me. But no, no, I, I sing every now and then, every now oh, and then, man. mostly right now. That's really funny. When I was a, a youth minister in seminary, I'd sing a solo for the little church where we were, great church, but where we were uh, serving. And uh, we went back, I went back and preached there in the fall for the first time in, in years. It was great to be back. And they're like, hey, are you going to sing while you're here? And my kids looked at me and they're like, you yeah. sang? I was like, yeah, once upon a time, I did that occasionally. Um, <laughs> but no more. I don't think you want me to do that anymore. <laughs> Well, tell us what we're here to talk about today is, uh, is leadership, I think, really, and how um, we lead at one stage of an organization's life or an institution's life or church's life, and then that organization continues to grow and change, and it requires different things of us, um, and then some things that remain the same, um, and that's true in a church. It's true, I think, for many of us in pandemic right now. We're clinging to much of what, much of what is the same, and we're learning some new skills as well. So we, we just kind of want to track some of that journey with you today that you've been on, um, which 2015 is not a long time ago um, <laughs> to go from a church plant to where you are now. So tell us a little bit about how the church started and, and what was required of you. What skills did you need as a leader in those early days? Absolutely. Well, uh, again, the church, as I mentioned earlier, started in 2015. And I think very early on, there was a... Um, there wasn't a real desire to be a pastor in the early days. I was a youth pastor. I was very content um, mm -hmm. in that role. I was at a great church. I know a lot of times I think we, we hear about experiences where people are leaving a bad situation. I was in a great situation um, and very content, my wife and I. Uh, but the first motivation was very much so spiritually led. It was a moment I had with God where I was just starting to ask those questions about, you know, what do I feel called to? Am I settling um, am I, am I allowing insecurity to make decisions for me? Um, and, uh, and I'm also being afraid of just things I've seen in the past, like burnout and the, the, the unhealthy elements and are those things, um, becoming a barrier. Uh, but then also, uh, I read a book in seminary, um, years ago, over a decade ago by Kirk Byron Jones called Holy Plug. And I bumped into that book again. And the premise of that book or the ethos was all about you know, we reach these kind of fork in the road moments where we kind of say, God, are you in this or that? And I felt like I really hit one of those moments where it wasn't that, you know, it was like a, a, a one road. I really felt like God said, hey, you can stay in this world. I was at a Baptist church. I was in a great situation, youth pastoring. I probably would have been a candidate that they would have considered to take over in 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Uh, and God said, hey, I'll bless you in that. And that'll be great service. But there's also this thing I'm brewing in your heart. Uh, and it really birthed out of just cultural analysis, what I didn't see, what my wife didn't see. We didn't see churches that were minority led with young pastors. Um, we didn't see churches that were minority led, that were advocates for major advocates for diversity. Um, we didn't see churches that were um, young, but still cared about tradition. Um, and so what we found is like you either a tradition church, which was code for older, or you're a young church. You were either a black church or a white church. You were either a contemporary church or a traditional church. And we just felt like we had a great appreciation for tradition that didn't rob us from modernity. We had 
a great appreciation for multi-generationalism and multi-ethnic community. And, um, and so all of that just kind of led us to this idea of what we didn't see and a prompting to say, how can we build that? And I think you asked a question about kind of what skills were needed to kind of launch a church uh, from the ground up. Um, the first thing I always tell people is relational equity. Um, or another way I would say it is that there's a great book called Emotional Intelligence. Like yeah. if you're going to start a church, lead a church, and this is even if you're just, you know, if you're going to step into candidacy. I mean, I think this applies to all of us who lead. Emotional intelligence is uh, an all time at an all time high a premium that you need. So that was a big for me, just kind of really making sure I was aware of others needs and my own uh, emotions. I think uh, humility. I mean, it sounds so common. Yeah. But uh, church planting will humble you. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the quotes that we say in premarital here at our church is the space between expectation and reality is the measure of your disappointment. Mm. And, and I think that applies to marriage because you're getting married. But I think it applies to leadership as well. Uh, if you're church planting or you're coming into a role as a pastor, there's a lot of stuff. You're like, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And then you start to realize quickly resources may not line up to that or you might not have all the skill set around you. And, uh, and, and I think all of those things. So it humbles you really quickly um, and makes you a learner. Um, and then I think one thing that I don't hear enough about is adaptability. Like you gotta be really nimble in those early days. Um, it's, it's a speedboat, it's not a cruise ship yet. And so you gotta be ready to turn as opportunity emerges. You gotta be ready to turn as gifts are brought to your congregation by way of people who might be ready to take you to a new level of thinking or resources or relationship. And you gotta be in a position to kind of move and not kind of be stuck to um, what's familiar and what's comfortable. So those are several things um, that I think have been very important. I will make this little note, and I'm hoping that anybody who thinks about church planting in particular thinks about this, but um, but identity is very important as well. Um, I think what separates you, I mean, there are a lot of great churches. If you're just going to want to start a church, like like sometimes I think people just start churches because they just want to be in charge. Right? So, <laughs> but I think there's something to be said for, you know, just kind of a sense of what do you want to bring to the kingdom community of, of whatever neighborhood or city you're in that could bring some unique nature. I'll give you one example of how we thought about that. While we talked about all the other things, multi-generationalism multi and multi-ethnic, one of the things that we just really felt a heart for is outreach as a central part of the organism and not as an accessory. And the way that manifested for us is every fifth Sunday, uh, since our inception, we do not have a church service. We suspend services to do a community outreach project. Um, and we found it to be the greatest evangelism tool in our churches, you know, history so far. So um, those are just some examples of what kind of skills we thought, like what is lacking? What do we not see? And, and that's not a discredit to the amazing churches in our area, but how do we kind of bring something unique to the kingdom community? I'm here in our city um, and that's helped us to, uh, to, to do that. So I, I didn't, again, I, I, we know each other, but I've never visited your church, though I will say on many Sunday mornings, your church is the first one that comes up on my Facebook feed. <laughs> and so I have worse because uh, being central, you're one of the few East coaches, East Coast churches I follow. And so uh, you, you and Josh Hayden, both um, hey. out of Ashland, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to y'all services some. Um, <clears throat> what has it been like? So being multicultural is part of the DNA of your church. Mm -hmm. Um can you say some, I know this is not some of what we talked about, but of the leadership characteristics needed to have a multicultural church. I mean, emotional intelligence is obviously part of that. Cultural intelligence, um, differing cultural intelligence is probably. Um, how, how has that formed kind of your day-to-day? -day? I assume that's something that affects every decision the church makes. 
Absolutely. And let me be very candid. You know, one thing I think this is only probably a value if, if people don't just give you the highlight reel, but give you the, yeah. the honest truths behind the scenes and behind the curtain. Um, it's been ebbs and flows. It's been it's been highs and lows. Um, I think it's been very interesting for us because we we might be seeing an all time high of cultural diversity and then go through a major season of cultural and social trauma. Um, and it just causes people to regress in their trust. And we start to see people not as a attending as much because it's like, hey, I just don't know. And we've actually talked to members of our church who are white who say, hey, I just, I, you know, coming into a small group, the conversation that felt like safe space yeah. for African-Americans that I didn't want to intrude in front of that safe space, but it consequently caused me to take a step back from the church. And it wasn't anything the church did. It was just what was the, the narrative of our culture and society. Um, there have been times when uh, we've taken stances that have not been easy for all parties to agree on, uh, both locally and nationally. And so it is it is nuanced and it is a constant learning curve. Um, I think the two things um, uh, that it that it really well, I'll tell you three things that we're doing now that probably newer. Um, and it's a part of what what the work that we've been doing around the Mosaic Project. Three things that have really helped the conversation for us is something we call what are you doing now? So what now, which I think always comes up and that now been an acronym for allowing people to name their narrative that they carry um, has been a super healthy practice. Um, all of us don't carry the same narrative. Yeah. And so let's just be honest about that. What narrative do you carry and what has informed that narrative? Uh, what environments, what family backgrounds? You know, for me, give you a quick story. I'll tell it really fast. Um, you know, I grew up in a very diverse family. So my grandmother was a black woman who had three black children, my mother, which was the eldest. And then she got married, her and my grandfather got married, who was a white man from Bath Springs, Tennessee. Hmm. The first year that interracial marriage was legal in the state of Virginia. Wow. So I, you know, I bring that narrative, right? And so then they had two children together. My mom's two youngest siblings, my aunt and uncle are mixed, they're biracial. And then one of my uncles married a woman from Puerto Rico and another one married a woman from Sierra Leone, West Africa. So I am clearly black, but my upbringing, I like to say Thanksgiving was always confusing. And we were always learning about culture. I didn't yeah. know our family was that unique. He took, my, my grandpa took me and my wife on our first date when we were 16 in a pickup truck listening to country music. I didn't know that was awkward until she got in the car and was like, what is happening? <laughs> so I have to name that narrative. There are other people who the first time they've ever heard a Caucasian preacher was at our church, right? Wow. Growing up in an all black church context. And then there are white people who come to our church and been members and faithful. We say, I'm here because I want to be a part of the solution, but I'm being exposed to things for the first time. So I think name the narrative that you carry is so important. Um, I think a second piece is own your lane, right? I think we put a lot of pressure on people to try to operate outside of where they feel comfortable, just giving people the grace to own the lane that they can run in. Yeah. Um, and then uh, write your dream. This has been a super healthy practice. Uh, Martin's dream was great. What's your dream for your community? What's your dream for your kids? Mm -hmm. And then let's live out every day trying to, honor that dream that you say you want, because when the difficulty comes, let's not retreat, let's lean into it. And so those have just been ways in which we've tried to lead a community um, through the various challenges of maintaining um, diversity and, and, and intercultural intelligence throughout this journey. Man, well, we may we may need to do this again sometime and we talk more about Mosaic and and that journey, because that that's worthy of a whole long conversation in and of itself. And Anytime I can uh, have a conversation with Vernon, I'm going to try to take that. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, man, that's helpful. So then the church kind of became established. And from what I, what I know of the church, it, it grew pretty quickly. 
and um, and it kind of became not just a fledgling start with sort of an uncertain future as you trusted for resources and things, but more of an established church with its own identity. Those things you had prayed and hoped for came to pass. Uh, when did you, was there a point when you realized, oh man, this is requiring something different of me than it did in the beginning? And how did you adjust to that? Where did you go for resources? What was that moment like as a leader where you knew you needed to change some to lead who the church was now? Yeah. So I'll start again. I'm, I'm really big on candor and, and transparency because I think, again, sometimes, particularly in a, a I'm a millennial. So in a social media age where um, comparison is often the thief of joy, it can look like everything is going great. But the question to when did I know it was time to change after a series of disappointing people that I knew in my heart of hearts weren't being immature, weren't weren't being um, um, childish or, or, or just, you know, kind of simple, but they really, we were dropping the ball. Yeah. I was dropping the ball. And after a series of those disappointments and difficult conversations about, oh my God, this is a person who's been faithful. This is a person who I know, like they care for us. And they just say, hey, this, this, this is not working. It, it, was an, it was an illumination. What, what, okay, maybe this is not them. It's not that. Where am I missing it? Yeah. And um, and so that was very sobering um, season when uh, that kind of transition was happening, when it was like, again, growing up in a small church, the largest church my wife and I have ever been a part of is the one we're leading. Wow. <laughs> so, so we're like, what? we don't know what to do. We know something needs to change, but we have no clue what to do to change it. Yeah. And um, and so I, I think there were three things we kind of did in that season to adapt. Uh, the first is we went to wisdom. And um, and this is a very important piece that I would say uh, that I encourage a lot of leaders to do now. Uh, diversify your access to wisdom to different industry leaders. Mm. We absolutely went to pastors who yeah. had led much longer than us. And we have oversight pastors because we believe every pastor should have a pastor. Yeah. So even at the inception of our church, even though we were able to start our church, we had three oversight pastors. Um, Dr. John Chandler, who's one of them, who you yeah. know, who's the founder and leader of Uptick. Um, but and they all are independent to our church. Um, but in addition to that, we found a lot of value in diversifying our access to wisdom by talking to business leaders. Um, we had a guy who was a VP of a bank at our church. And I asked him, can I just come sit in a staff meeting and see how you guys steward money? Can I see how you lead a meeting? Can I see how you, you know, hold people accountable? Um, and what I had to learn was that you know, so much of sometimes what we learn in seminary, I hope I don't get in trouble for making this statement, right? As I see theological seminary in the background, but so much of what we learn in seminary sometimes can be great for um, head knowledge, but I know I did not have half enough administration classes, HR classes, you know, like, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, this is about leading a staff. This is about building a budget. I remember the first time I went to a bank meeting, they said so many words I had never heard before, right? You know, and I'm under the table Googling, like, they're like, yeah, CRA. And I'm like, I have no idea what that's saying. But I'm just nodding and I'm shaking my head. So um, I, again, that diversity was really what helped me make the turn. Um, teachers and educators were, were big. I mean, how do you help a class learn? Because I'm helping a congregation learn. So yeah. that was important. Um, and then I would say the other really big thing that we did to, uh, kind of like adapt was we went back to those people and got feedback. No different than a job does an exit interview. We were like, hey, we know you're not, you know, a member of our church anymore. We know that yeah. we would love it if we could learn from you. 
And I was amazed by how many of them were able to give helpful insights. Yeah. We didn't agree with all of them, but it was helpful to get another vantage point of um, um, eyes and ears about where we were missing the mark a little bit. So that was important. I don't want to make it sound all bleak either, though. No. Um, I think part of it also, too, was just the fun and the joy of turning a corner. Right. So there was also some 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 enjoyment in that for innovation and experimentation. We were like, hey, one of the things we started seeing is, you know, there are new needs that are emerging. How do we bring along people on the journey that can help us build that? And so, I mean, this is probably a cliche to everybody, but you're only going to be as good as your team. And so that was another big step in adapting to the growth. Um, You know, we started uh, just to give you some context with um, because I I don't believe numbers are the only measure of success. But just to give context, we started with about 50 people on our launch team. Um, 25 of which to 30 were college students. So not, you know, right? yeah. not a lot of ability there. And to date, we're about 1400 members. Um, and we were, um, you know, just in, and steadily growing pre-pandemic. Um, so, um, so God has been gracious. We're learning a lot and adapting quickly. Yeah. I don't know if that helped or if you want to take yeah, that. That's more. great. I love the, the going, the, what do you say? Accessing wisdom and choosing mm-hmm. wisdom from different areas. Um, that's the, the thought I've never really encountered the thought of an oversight pastor or someone kind of officially <laughs> pastoring your pastor and, and choosing that both for accountability and encouragement and any number of things. Um, and it is seminary teaches us some great things. I, there's no way I could have pastored at all without it. Others do and do it well. Uh, but really, it just taught me how to learn, you know, and what and how little I know <laughs> and how to keep getting those answers. And I think it's a uh, we're, we're educated and always learning at the same time, uh, much of the time. Uh, and, if Matt, I, you, and if I could, Matt, really quick, can I say something to, I mean, this just prompted me, even you just said that, the thought of too, anybody who's listening, who's like, okay, I'm leading, maybe I'm leading something that's growing, or maybe I will be leading something that's growing. And you're like, it, cause I think there's like two questions, right? It's how do I adapt? But then there's how do I survive, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think that that ladder sometimes gets lost. And I would just say two really quick lessons that we learned that were equally as important in the adapting phase because we were learning and we were accessing wisdom and we were, you know, getting pastored and we were, you know, um, bringing on new team members with different skills, hiring people who, who brought in skills that we did not have. Like that was a big part of it too. Like yeah. noticing what we lacked, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but one of the things I will say is we survived it through pace and development. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the things that was really hard, particularly for Enneagram three and an overachiever was like, right, was recognizing that everything doesn't have to happen fast now. Yeah. So when you start something, it's like, you gotta be nimble and you gotta move and you gotta jump on this opportunity. But then when something grows, you gotta recognize every decision affects way more people than it used to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and now those people aren't just curious people. They are invested people. Um, and so pace was very important for me to learn. Like everything doesn't have to happen overnight. Some things don't have to happen in 30 or 60 days. Some things can happen over a year. Um, that was very important. Pace also included rest. Like, you know, one of the big things I came into the knowledge of was the importance of Sabbath Mm. and rest is not a suggestion, but in God's kingdom, it's a commandment. And so that was a really important practice. And then again, the ongoing leadership development, accessing uh, ways in which to continue to uh, grow my own leadership and the leadership of those who would be with me on the journey. Um, so it wasn't just enough for me to go to conferences, but now we have specific touch points four times a year where we expect our team 
to mm. be growing. Like we ask them questions like, who are you learning from this five years ahead of you? Yeah. Right. And that keeps all of us humble, right? Like go somewhere yeah. where you're not in- impressive. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so those have just been important ways for us to sustain the adaptability as well as the church as well. When it seems to me, a lot of that may go back to, to what you said at the beginning about if you're going to start a church, know why you're starting a church and what the, what is unique about that identity. One of our other guests, the pastor here at First Baptist Waco named Matt Snowden, he, he talked a lot of, this is months ago now about the, the importance of culture. And I think one of his statements was our church is cursed to know who it is, you know, like mm. we know who we are and that's our greatest strength. And we know who we're not, which is really frustrating sometimes. And we are who we are. And so we have to develop that. So the culture of continual learning, the culture of having the humility to go to the people that left your church and say, how do we, I mean, there's kind of an openness, maybe I'm just kind of envisioning like an open handedness to, we have something to give, we have much to receive. Um, That's a, that's a pretty wonderful identity for a church to have that welcomes others in, but can still proclaim truth all at the same time. I love that idea of you said a culture of learning. I think culture is so important, right? Because a lot of people will say they have culture and really they just have aspirations. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, well, this is what you want your culture to be, but it's really not what the culture is. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I do think, and I just want to give a credit to my wife, who, um, of course, was at the foundation of this. And she worked in corporate America for 10 years. And her entire corporate background has been in audit. Oh, wow. Um, so for four years, she worked at Ernst & Young, one of the big four, as a financial auditor. But then for the seven years, she worked at Altria, a major company here in Virginia, um, as an auditor of systems and processes. Oh, wow. So she's onboarded our church as well on our staff. And so I think what is really important, I know I just want to honor her because I bring a lot of vision. about. She is really great at helping us to have a culture because she's an auditor. An auditor comes in to expose to you what you don't see. Yeah. And so it is, it is known on our staff, like, if you don't like being exposed for the opportunities for improvement, if you don't yeah. want to hear the 10%, which is language we use on our team, like we always say, hey, what's the 10%? Everybody on our staff knows, like, hey, 90% is great, but how do we go from good to great? What's the 10%? Yeah. And, uh, and I think she really brought that to our culture as an auditor of like, okay, now where, what are the opportunities for improvement? So just want to give honor where honor is due. That's been a great asset um, yeah. to building that culture. Oh, what a gift. You know, one of the books we use for leadership and one of the classes I teach is Resilient Ministry, which it, it talks about leadership as poetry and plumbing. You know, mm-hmm. you have the poetry, you have the vision, and then you've got to plumb it. You know, you've got to have the system that can execute that. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people are good at one or the other, or churches are good at one or the other, having both of those there. Um, well, what we, we've talked some about, you know, all that's changed in leadership. Um now your your church 1400 plus you you're we're not through pandemic but maybe we're close to being almost maybe possibly through however we're phrasing that the, the end is inside people are gathering again i know we talked a little bit about mask mandate changes in the previous conversation um maybe two two questions i mean what what is changing now what are you experiencing now that's requiring you continue to learn and then what has remained the same through all of these different stages of leadership that you cling to and, and what has remained the same? So great. Um, can I start with the latter? Can I talk sure, about what yeah. you say? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let me again say, I think this question is important, whether you're a church planter or if you're just a pastor or a leader in a spiritual context in general, I think it, it is very much so applicable to all of us. 
Um, I think two of the things that have stayed the same are, I don't care how many digital um, avenues of engagement we create. I think what we're seeing is relational equity mm. is still going to matter for the body of Christ. Yeah. People need to be in community. Um, I'm not saying that digital community won't also be an avenue that we have to stream to, and I'll talk about that in a second. But I think there will be no substitute for people what digital community cannot do and engagement, uh, in my humble opinion, even as a millennial, because I know this shocks a lot of people like, oh, he's a millennial, he's just all, all in on technology. Um, I just think there's something happening emotionally. Brene Brown said uh, one of the top three things that she's seeing as a social psychologist as a crisis is loneliness. Mm. And loneliness cannot be, the anecdote to loneliness is not being in front of a screen longer. Yeah. Um, it's being in community. So I think there's something to to that that just stays the same for the church as a consistent. Yeah. Um, I also think uh, the, the the building of the next generation. Uh, what I'm finding is, you know, my, my daughter and my son did virtual school and think about what a church and what a kingdom establishment provides to the next generation cannot be substituted, right? That those values, those principles, and I find that those children look forward to that, that place and that space where they're not only building additional relationships, but they're also building um, their theology about what church and the body of Christ is for them. And I think, again, that stayed the same for us. Like we have never lost the value of those two things of what the church is supposed to be for the next generation and what it means for people relationally. Yeah. Uh, as well. So those two things have stayed the same. I mean, it, just to give you context, when, when we reopened, we reopened with youth and children first. Really? Which is inverted of how most have done it just because of the complications of it. Mm -hmm. Our, and it was based on what parents were seeing in their kids. Yeah. Right. They just didn't have the emotional intelligence to process being in a screen. Some of us, you know, we, we, some of us probably introverts have been like, Hey, I've enjoyed this a little bit. <laughs> um, but, but maybe we like, we know a day we've had enough experience to know we'll snap back into it when we need to. But if you're a child and your sociology is being formed at a ground level, I started to know as a parent and thought, saw other parents say, what I'm seeing in my child, I just, I don't want them to lose those valuable lessons that can only be learned in the disappointment of the company of their peers or the joy of the company of their peers and stuff like that. So as a church, you know, you know, youth and children's ministry were the first things to lead us back into, you know, um, uh, in-person engagement. Uh, so those two things stayed the same. I would say that for us, the things that are definitely changing or, or on the front end now, and I think some of them won't be a surprise, are innovation, right? We are definitely, and not innovation just as an idea, but, um, uh, or as an ideal, but as a part of our infrastructure. Hmm. So here's what I would say to anybody, like, you need to make innovation a part of your infrastructure now. Um, and so if you are leading a church or planting a church, um, I think one, innovation takes trust and patience, right? Trusting people who are gonna try things and not always get it right. Um, and, and patience to know that you're now looking at long-term pursuits and not just short-term pursuits. So we've adjusted a lot of language in our church to say things like, hey, we're gonna pilot this. Yeah, we're going to experiment with this. Um, and that's been very helpful, I think, for people um, on this journey, because, again, you know, we've had to really focus on innovation being a key part of our infrastructure. Now, um, I, I had a mentor tell me one time that uh, in order to be successful at anything, you have to determine what you're willing to fail at. Mm. 
Yeah. And what we've settled on in this season is we are willing to fail at, at some objectives and some goals, of course, within stewardship and, and not, you know, spending all the money and all that stuff. But um, but we got to take some risk in this season because um, um, we, there's a book I read called The Coming Shift it's that asked Wayne Gretzky, what made you a great hockey player? And he said, I never skated to where the puck was. I skated to where it was going. Yeah. Um, I think that if we are to be effective as a church in this next season we have to keep innovation as a part of the infrastructure not just as an ideal so, so what, uh, what's the difference so you've talked about a couple things yep. that I did, I'm just curious in my own mind about you talked about the 90 10 thing how 90 percent may be going great but y'all are always asking what's the 10 percent? how do we go from good to great how do, so that's I would call that what like tweaking or something you know how do we make minor changes what's the difference between that and innovation uh, when y'all are talking as a staff, when you're planning, can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. So I think opportunities for improvement of us improvement, right. Is that 10%. Yeah. It's, it's never being, it's, 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 it's being content with celebration, knowing that, that we give each other grace, but it's also annoying that our aim is to, to honor God and honor people and give it our best. And so because our goal is to always make it better to be our best, there's always generally an opportunity for us to move from good to great in an area. So that's more about improvement. Innovation is more about, in our, in our book, is more about what are the questions that culture is asking that we're not even trying to answer. I heard somebody say one time, the church is sometimes great at answering questions that nobody's asking, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it was like, nobody's even asking that question anymore. <laughs> but we're like, we got the answer for it. And it's like, that's not the question culture is asking. Yeah. So to me, innovation, Improvement is like, there's some things that I think are, are, are timeless truths that the church should always do, like discipleship and, 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 um, and next generation and worship. And I think those things are like, how do we continue to fine tune and improve those things? 10%, 10%, 10%. Innovation to me is about what are the questions that culture is asking that we just don't even have the infrastructure for right now. For example, we talked about the digital church landscape. Uh, for us, what we're finding is that it's going to be important that we have a culture of accessibility and intimacy. Mm. Intimacy meets the need that we talked about earlier, which is people will still need community. But I think there's going to be a decentralization for things like Sunday. So we seeing this in our context, particularly leading still a predominantly African-American church. Um, AAU is a thing. I mean, I, I'm sure that's the thing in all cultures, but like kids are gone all summer, right? <laughs> We get emails from parents who be like, hey, love the church. You just won't see us from May till August. Yeah. Well, I still love this church. So what does accessibility look like when that's just not going to change? <laughs> yeah. Right. That's a battle we're not going to win, I don't think. Right. Um, and so to us, innovation is about how do we build infrastructure so that they feel like they have access not only to stream, but to community for three to four months in a brand new way. Yeah. Um, Another way we're seeing this is we are piloting um, uh, uh, smaller campuses um, that, that don't require in-person gatherings weekly um, because at people's just lifestyle, um, whether it's family or something like that, if we can provide the discipleship mechanisms for them to disciple their homes um, absent of our presence, you know, we can equally be connected to them through app or through resource um, without them necessarily having to be in a building with us every single week. Yeah. Um, and so is it, some of that is about scale. Some of that is about experimentation. Um, but that's, I don't know if that answered your question or not, or that makes sense. No, that does. Yeah, yeah. It's about asking that question of 
for young families who are just saying, hey, this last year, right? We talked about this a little bit. I actually enjoy flipping pancakes on Sunday morning and taking walks on Sunday morning. Or I enjoy like getting ready on Sunday for the work week. Um, I'll tell you one more thing we're, we're even looking at as we think about these locations is does it have to be on a Sunday? Because for some families, Sunday is actually, you know, it's like, man, you know, you know, it's a lot to get up and do the thing with the kids. And, and could it be on a Friday? Could it be on a Thursday? Could it be on a, yeah. on a Tuesday night that it's just easier to get the kids in rhythm? So we are just, um, you know, giving ourselves the grace and the space to fail. And that's yeah. what it's about. No, that's really helpful. Cause I do think that there's a lot of places that equate program improvement with inter- with innovation. Mm. And like you said, that's not really contemplating what are the questions out there, the, the barriers to involvement that real people have, real families have, or people not connected to us have that we're not even thinking about while we're thinking about how do we get people back? How do we get people back? Maybe there's a more fundamental questions underneath that. And it sounds like y'all aren't Y'all are doing all of this without downplaying the importance of gathering together physically and even a Sunday morning gathering as well. But how do we how do we catch those that maybe that doesn't work for? Um, and, and, and let me just say to that point, you know, Matt, I think what, what starts to happen when this conversation emerges is idealism meets like reality, expectation and reality. You can go back to that quote, because I, I can hear somebody right now and as a pastor or a church planner probably listening to this or whether it's today or weeks from now, and they're saying, that sounds good and all, where's that money coming from to try that? <laughs> Who's doing that? Because our hands are already full. And so I don't want to undersell this. It requires stewardship and sacrifice somewhere. Um, going back to that quote, if you want to be successful at anything, you have to determine what you're willing to fail at. So we have made intentional decisions to say, hey, this might not be as great as it once was right now, but we just feel like, that's worth the sacrifice in this season because we may be on to something that sustains the future of our church for the next generation. And, and as we've casted vision for that, so there are three ways I always approach that. Um, one, I always say, don't just show up and announce stuff, right? Get some allies, right? That's a practical first step for us. Like we do something called uh, vision nights um, yeah. where we'll just cast vision and we always make sure people understand the why. Um, another thing that we're really big on is stewardship. So how do we continue to look at finances as not not a um, not a God, but a guide? Mm. Yeah. Right. So, OK, this is a great God, but it's not our God. And we sometimes have to come back to the table and say, I would even go as far as to say, where could God be leading us to yeah. use these finances? That is more in alignment with the future of the church and not just the past. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's funny, right? People assume that because we've only been in church for six years, that tradition doesn't creep up. I literally had uh, a member of our church who's a beloved member, and we laugh about this joke all the time. But they came to me one time and they said, hey, Pastor Vernon, I heard we're not doing this event anymore, blah, blah, blah. They said this to me. They said, you know, just historically, you know, this has been, uh, right? You, you see what I'm going here? Like, historically, this has just been like a major win for our church. And I'm like, We've been a church for four years. First of all, how can we be doing anything historically? And second of all, <laughs> and second of all, we did it twice. Like, you know? But they fell in love with it, right? So they grasped to it. And so, um, again, just really important keeping that into um, um, perspective and making sure that um, people. Here's one last thing I'll say: systemize innovation, right? Um, so that people get used to it. So we are committed 
to twice a year, we're going to do something that stretches our congregation. Mm. They know it, right? The staff knows it twice a year. We're going to do something so big and so courageous that it's just going to be a part of the DNA. And so what happens is that way change is expected, not simply tolerated. Yeah. Right. But it's a part of the culture. And so we've done things like, um, and other churches have done this, but we've done things like done and at the movies, some churches have done that. You might've heard of that before, but that's been great. But to our church, right. That was innovative for our context. And it was just awesome for them to be able to say, we're watching a movie at church and we're talking about the biblical truth that could lie in this movie. Um, the fifth Sunday outreach, um, was innovative when we started it. Right. It was like, who is not having church? to serve their community. And we were like, hey, this is eliminating all of your excuses for service. So if you come to church every Sunday, yeah. if 200 of you come to church every Sunday at the time when we started it, that means 200 of us should be able to serve, right? Yeah. You know, and so yeah. really encouraging a lot of that kind of massive service on, on a day that you already have set aside. So again, just just little ways in which we try innovation practices throughout the years. Well, I think that is the gift of pandemic, if we can say that. We may not be ready to say that quite yet, but I think we can at some point, uh, whether it's a fairly newer church like yours or whether it's a 170-year-old church, mm-hmm. it has kind of ripped the scab off of change. Like We've all had to change, and it does give us all um, the opportunity to start breeding that into the DNA, right, and massaging that new cultural aspect of change as a constant, because they're whether it's pandemic or something else, right? We're not, there's no, there's no, the, the old days where your church was going to sing the same songs, have the same order of worship for 40 or 50 years, um, which is, yeah, which is a lot of, a lot of excitement. I think to some terror perhaps for others, but a lot of wonderful opportunities to incarnate the gospel in fresh ways of fresh expressions of the spirit for today, which is very exciting. Vernon, man, we could do this all day. Um, and uh, I wish we could. But thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Um, thank you for your witness to us of, of obedience and a spirit-led um, leadership in your church. Um, and we're grateful to hear of God's blessings on your church and your life and your marriage and everything else. Um, would you have a final word of encouragement or benediction or blessing for us today? Yeah, I mean, if I could just encourage um, two little encouragements and then I'll, if I could, I just give people some information on how to stay connected and then I'll, I'll benedict us. But I do want to just encourage everybody, like, give yourself grace. Mm. Um, I think nobody's an expert in this and nobody's going to be an expert on the other side. And um, I think it's very important that we all give ourselves the grace to know that we're all trying. Um, the other thing I would just simply say is you can't beat the internet, so don't try. <laughs> the internet is going to change on you. The algorithm is going to change on you. Again, as a millennial, I see that a lot. And I see it a lot in churches that are established too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stay true to who you are. Um, evolve, innovate, but don't lose identity because the internet is going to keep changing. And you're going to hope one day that you didn't try to keep up with it. Um, and so... Um, so just, you know, take that from a millennial's heart. Um, and, um, and if anybody just wants to stay connected, uh, you can follow me on all social media platforms at, at Vernon Gordon. Um, I also, again, as I mentioned earlier, just launched something called the Mosaic Project, which is all about um, inspiring social change and cultural unity for the greater good. We just launched a brand new course. So you can definitely check that out, which is all about leading towards social change and cultural unity. And you can find that at madeformosaic.org. Um, and so we encourage you to check that out. And I can be of any service to anybody would love to do so. And I just love to pray for you guys as we've been a That sound good? Please. Thanks, friend. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this time that we've been able to share together. 
we thank you for the many, many gifts that uh, will encounter and engage with this conversation. Uh, some who are gifted and called to church plant, some who are gifted and called to lead established congregations, some of us who may be called to work even beyond the four walls. Whoever we are and whatever uh, grace and call we carry, may we do so, Lord God, with excitement, uh, with newfound energy, and with the courage to go into the wilderness seasons, knowing that if your voice is calling us to the body of Christ, if you brought us this far, you'll never leave us. So we trust you. We trust you for your voice, but we also trust your vision for your church, that you will never fail and your church will endure for generation to generation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Vernon, it's been good, man. I've enjoyed this. Thank you for your time. Thank you, guys. All right. Hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Bye.